Well, as has been uh, mentioned, there were two very uh, kind of familiar qualities left off of the hindrance talk, because Joseph ran out of time. Those were attachment and aversion. So I'd like to talk about those tonight from a slightly different angle. In fact, it's often taught that the three root hindrances or, or defilements or torments of the mind, which is the most accurate translation maybe of the word kalesa from Pali, are attachment or grasping or greed, aversion, which is anger and fear, interestingly enough known as the same mind state in different forms, and delusion. So it's grasping aversion and delusion, or sometimes known as greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the the three roots of suffering in, in some way, you might say. And I often, these days, conceptualize those three states as a kind of misplaced faith. In Pali, the word is sada. It's usually translated as faith. And it means to place our hearts upon, to give our hearts to. And I think of those three states of mind, of grasping, aversion, and delusion, as having faith in the wrong things. Having that quality of faith placed in, in objects, in situations, in ways of relating that will ultimately disappoint us, let us down, cause us suffering. In grasping, we're placing our hearts upon a few things. One is the possibility of keeping something or someone from changing. And we all know how unlikely that is to work. The state of grasping is that kind of leaning forward, trying to contour our experience, craft it in some way so that we feel more in control, we feel more secure. We want to preserve, to keep, to hold in a world where constant change is the actual truth. It's the way things are. So the Buddha had a very kind of homey example for that. He said, if you're trying to hold on really tight to that which must inevitably change, it's like holding on really tight to a revolving wheel. Some point in the cycle, you are bound to get run over. And so it is. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that we don't want or we don't care or that we're inert or, or passive or or just kind of dead, you know, deadened to life. We actually have to look at the nature of attachment. What happens when we are lost in that kind of fixation, that sort of tunnel vision? You know, when we really want something we don't have, and everything we do have, it doesn't count. It's just negligible. We don't feel in touch. We don't feel connected. We don't feel grateful. We feel bereft because we're fixated on the one thing that is not yet here. And if it is here, we're so afraid that it might change. So we're really living in defiance of the truth of things, of how things are. It's a very frightened, tentative state to have that kind of attachment. And it makes our world very, very small. Whereas it could be much more expansive, open, 
And the fact of change doesn't have to necessarily imply loss. It also means renewal. It means possibility. It means beginnings. But when we're trying to deny change altogether, we can't open to that aspect of it. And we experience the loss nonetheless as everything moves on. So attachment, I think of as kind of living at an oblique angle to the truth of things. Things are just a little weird when we're lost in attachment. It's not that it's bad or reprehensible or, or, or something that we should you know, hate ourselves for. But to live so disconnected from the truth of things is bound to be painful. And that's, that's kind of the very nature of, of grasping or holding on. And then the second of the root hindrances is anger or aversion, which is almost the energetic opposite of grasping, but is very similar in many ways. Because here, too, we want to assert some kind of control over how things are. We want to push away, to disconnect, to deny what's happening, to pretend it's not there, to separate, to strike out against. And as we talked about in the Metta course, anger and fear are considered exactly the same mind state in the Buddhist psychology. Anger being the outflowing, aggressive, energized form. Fear being the imploded, frozen, held-in form. But they're just the same state where we experience something painful, we suffer in some way, and on top of that, we have shame and anger, denial, disgust, some state that seems to imply if we'd really been on top of things, this wouldn't have happened. And so we push, we blame. And again, it's a very, very painful state because things are as they are. Life is just this this cascade of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, as the Buddha said. And there is no one's life that is just pleasant with no pain. Once I was was hiking with some friends in um, the state park in California and we had decided... We're going to go in for three days on a certain trail. And then on the fourth day, we were going to turn around and come back out along the same trail, thus retracing our steps. And this was the third day, so we're still going in. And it turned out to be a day of many, many, many hours of very constant, steady, unremitting downhill walking. And at one point, I was walking with a friend... And it was like we were both struck by the simultaneous realization. And we both just stopped. And he looked at me and said, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. (laughs) And sure enough, the next day when we turned around and walked along the very same trail, it was many, many, many hours of uphill walking. You know, and that's not to say that on every level it's a dualistic universe, but on the level in which we experience pleasure and pain, it is. And our life is a mixture, ever-changing, in many ways outside of our control. So what is that feeling of of resentment, of, of hatred, as though we should have been able to stop it? 
as though this should not have existed. And so we strike out against what is actually the truth of, of that moment of our lives at that time. It's the nature of anger or aversion that we get tunnel vision here too. You know, when was the last time you were really angry or really afraid and your mind kind of happily thought, well, if it doesn't work out this way, it'll work out that way. You know, we don't have a sense of options or possibilities. Everything collapses into that one seemingly certain terrible truth or seeming truth. And so we suffer from, from that kind of claustrophobic vision there too. And then the third is delusion, which the, the translation from the Pali word moha means stupefied, to be stupefied. And we all know that state. It's the state where, you know, you're driving along and all of a sudden you start thinking, is this Route 202? <laughs> am I still on 122? Where am I? Or... A few days ago, I was asleep, and I was dreaming about getting ready to give this talk. And I dreamt that I couldn't print out the notes. And so I was going around from person to person, asking them uh, if I could use their printer. And everybody said their printer didn't work. And then I woke up in the morning, and I spent like the morning kind of in that state, you know, when your dreams linger, and you don't quite know what's true, thinking... I'm not going to have any notes. How am I going to do, you know, the printer doesn't work. And I think, no, no, that was a dream. (laughs) And then again, you know, it would kind of come and be sort of enveloping. And I think, oh, no. And then I think, no, wait a minute, that was a dream. So that state of delusion where we're kind of not so sure it's a dream. (laughs) We don't know where we are. We don't know what's happening. We're kind of cloaked in, uh, it's a little like sloth and torpor, which has some of the same elements. We're cloaked in that kind of dullness where we can't quite connect to what's going on. This is a quotation from a a poem by Pablo Neruda. The poem is entitled, Flies Enter a Closed Mouth. He says in the poem, When did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their order? Why is the scorpion venomous? and the elephant benign. What are the tortoise's thoughts? To which point do the shadows withdraw? What is the song of the rain's repetitions? Where do birds go to die, and why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much. I think of delusion sometimes as being that state of not realizing what it is we actually do know, not realizing what it is that we don't know, and not having the energy, the kind of um, verve for life to actually ask the questions. So it's grasping, aversion, and delusion. Delusion is in many ways the underpinning of the other two. Sometimes we experience almost a kind of pure delusion as confusion, as bewilderment, as dullness, as helplessness, feeling cut off from the essential nature of what's happening. And sometimes we experience delusion in its role of ignorance. 
would we really get so very lost in grasping or attachment if we were awake, if we were connected to how much everything is changing? Would we really get so lost in anger if we recognize the conditioned nature of that which comes and goes? And the, the whole web of conditions that come together to have something arise at a certain time that really would never have been under our control. When the Buddha talked about reality as we experience it, he talked about what uh, is called in the tradition the six sense doors, six ways that we know our lives in any moment. And that is seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. And then the, the last is what is called the mind door, which is imagery, thinking, emotions. So he said every single moment of our lives is seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or some experience through the mind door that is life. And he said, we perceive each one of those moments as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This kind of part of the package of, of our consciousness in that moment. And he said, we have a conditioned tendency when the experience is pleasant to reach out and want to grab it. And when the experience is unpleasant, to strike out against it, to try to make it go away, to deny that it's there. And our conditioned tendency when our experience is just neutral is to go to sleep. It's to disconnect. And he said, there is a possibility in each moment of our lives, each moment of our experience, instead of being bound to those habitual tendencies, actually to be free. We can experience fully the pleasure of what is arising without that extra thing of trying to be in control, make it stay. And we can experience fully with an open heart the pain of what is happening instead of trying to twist the truth to make it not so. And we can actually wake up and be present when our experience is just neutral or ordinary. That is the definition of mindfulness, to be aware without adding grasping, aversion, or delusion. So in every single moment of our experience, without exception, we have the possibility of that kind of freedom. Now sometimes people fear, or sometimes people long for, uh, but more people probably fear, that if they meditate enough, everything will kind of flatten out into this gray, amorphous blob, you know, and there won't be any more pain, but there won't be any more pleasure either. And it's all just going to be flat. But that's not so. Going back to the Buddha's model, in every moment of experience, we will know pleasure, pain, or neutrality. It's subsequent to that perception that we have that opportunity. So life doesn't lose its intensity, its vividness, its feeling tone, but we can be free instead of being bound. That's the opportunity of mindfulness. Buddha also talked about how sometimes 
those strong tendencies we can have, those strong habits of grasping and aversion and delusion can kind of constellate into what he called personality types, where even though we certainly all have all three going quite a lot, sometimes just the way we've been conditioned comes to there being a strong emphasis on approaching life a lot through one or another of, of these three tendencies primarily. So he said, for example, there's somebody called a greedy type. This doesn't mean that they're greedy people, but they like everything to be nice and pleasant. A, a greedy type is a person who doesn't really want to see what's wrong, what's troubling, what's unsatisfying in life. They don't want to see change because they want nice things and and things to be really good. And so they're the kind of person who would come into a room and their eye would just fall automatically on what they like. Oh, that's, you know, lovely paneling. And, you know, I mean, (laughs) what a nice arrangement of cushions. And, you know, I like what you're wearing. You know, that's so lovely. Where did you get it? And, you know, it's just how they are. It's what they see first. And I sometimes describe a person like that as the kind of person who in a meeting, you know, some problem will be presented, some dilemma will be uh, described, and they'll say, it'll all work out. And you're sitting there thinking, how? How is it going to all work out? But they're just, it's all going to work out, it's all going to be fine, it's lovely, you know, no problem. And the angry type of person, which is the next type, of course, is the opposite. It's the kind of person who will walk into a room and see what's wrong or what they don't like. Like, you know, that's a really bad exit sign over there. I don't know if that's going to work, you know, in the event of, of a fire. And what's this glare that's coming out of the light? You know, you'd think that they could get better lights. And, you know, what are you wearing? I don't like that. And, <laughs> you know, and... It's just how they are. You know, it's what they see first. And, and in a meeting, I think of a person, you can tell I spent a lot of time in meetings. In a meeting, I think of a person like that as the kind of person where some possibility is presented or, or a new direction is offered, and they say, it's not going to work. And you sit there and think, well, why not? <laughs> why is it going to work? Just, no, it's not going to work. And that, that is their particular tendency, whereas a, a deluded type, which I very strongly am, and so we'll probably go into great length about in the course of, of this talk, a deluded type kind of doesn't notice much, you know? Just like, <laughs> all right, you know, like, what did you say is there? And, you know, it's a little bit foggy, you know, a little bit uncertain about things, and just kind of, okay, I guess, you know? And almost always needs to wait for someone else to point out things. I have an old story and a new story about that. The old story is from a few years ago. Uh, One night teaching here, I had gone to Cambridge to give a talk and came back, um, you know, pretty late at night. And I noticed just as I was parking my car next door that the um, gas gauge was was quite down, and I thought, oh, you know, I better get some gas at some point. And then I went to sleep, and I woke up in the morning, and I came over here to do interviews, and I walked by the place where I parked my car, and it wasn't there. 
so I walked into the staff dining room and I, I came upon the person who, if anybody had taken the car to go put gas in it, it would have been him. So I said to him, did you take my car? And he said, no. And I said, that's funny, it's gone. <laughs> and he said, it's gone? I said, yeah. And then came the killer moment. He looked at me and he said, are you sure? <laughs> and I thought, am I sure? I think it's gone. I said, I don't know, car's kind of big, isn't it? And it's like, I-, I think it's gone. And he said, I'm going to go check. And tell little they trust me. And then uh, one of the other teachers walked into the staff dining room, and I looked at her and I said, did you take my car? <laughs> and she is a, a self-described uh, angry type, and she said, well, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you just lent it to somebody and forgot who it was. And I thought, oh, I lent it to somebody. I forgot who it was. And, so. and then I, I went upstairs and I did interviews. And every once in a while, I think, who did I lend my car to? And I can't remember who it was. And, and then I came down for lunch. And I, I, another teacher walked into the room. And I said, did you take my car? And Joseph overheard me. And he said, oh, I know what happened to your car. You know, there was this emergency. And somebody called at like 6 in the morning. And I knew you'd gotten in really late. So... you know, they needed the car. So I I told them to take your car. So that was the answer to the car question. So recently, very recently, I just had this experience. I taught, um, as many of you know, the Meta retreat that just ended. And I was sitting here at uh, the end of the course, and and somebody who has given me permission to tell the story, who had been sitting in the course, came up to me and he said, "Um, you know, I'm very into... Uh, what he called visual dharma, you know, the way things look. They, they really have to look right. And he said, I'm very upset about the chairs in the dining room. And I said, oh, <laughs> what's wrong with the chairs in the dining room? And he said, well, you know you have three kinds of chairs. And I thought, well, I've lived here for 28 years. I can't honestly say that I know we have three kinds of chairs. And he said, they're all different sizes. They're all different heights. And He said, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go down and rearrange the chairs (laughs) so that the tallest chairs are all together, and then the medium-sized chairs are all together, and I mean, there's a greedy type, you know, and then, and the smaller chairs are all together, and then he thought, you know, I would be so much happier if they looked like that, but he said, it wouldn't last, you know, it just, and I was just in like complete, a complete daze, I thought, really? (laughs) You know, we have three heights of chairs. Who would have known, you know? So that's how we are. (laughs) I want to read a little bit to you from the Vasudhimaga, or the Path of Purification, which is um, an ancient commentarial text from the Buddhist tradition about discerning the type of person you are. And once again, of course, we all have all three um, at different times, but sometimes you can tell something is, is quite strong and strongly conditioned. And I think it's kind of good, you know, because it's another help in not taking any of these things personally. So the Vasudhimaga says, you can discern the type of person by the posture. When one of greedy temperament is walking in their usual manner, they walk carefully, put their foot down slowly, 
put it down evenly, lift it up evenly, and their step is springy. One of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, put their foot down quickly, lift it up quickly, and their step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, (laughs) puts their foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and their step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. That of one of angry temperament is rigid. That of one of deluded temperament is muddled. When they sit or they lie down to go to sleep, one of greedy temperament spreads their bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing their limbs, and they sleep in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, they give their answers slowly as though doubtful. One of angry temperament spreads their bed hastily anyhow. With their body flung down, they sleep with a scowl. When woken, they get up quickly and answer as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face down with their bodies sprawling. (laughs) When woken, they get up slowly saying, huh? (laughs) Also in action, in sweeping, etc., one of greedy temperament grasps the broom well and they sweep cleanly and eagerly without hurrying or scattering the sand as if they were strewing flowers. One of angry temperament grasps the broom tightly and they sweep uncleanly and unevenly with a harsh noise, hurriedly throwing up the sand on each side. One of deluded temperament grasps the broom loosely, and they sweep not cleanly or evenly, mixing the sand up and turning it over. (laughs) And it goes on and on. (laughs) So it's grasping aversion and delusion in some amount of strength and some amount of of relative positioning with one another. And at the root is really some kind of delusion. Because when we are lost in delusion, we just can't see how things are. We tend not to experience life in an integrated way, but more as a kind of puzzling array of pieces. We don't know how things fit together. And when we don't see how things are interrelated, how they're connected, we feel overcome. We feel confused. We don't know how to relate. It's hard to experience joy, to open fully to states of of joy and happiness when we are habituated to delusion. It's certainly hard to experience pain openly, because we'd rather not see it. And so our tendency in pleasure or in pain when delusion is very strong is just to numb out. That's what we seek. That's where we feel comfortable, is in that state of being cocooned or being removed, being withdrawn from the pleasure and pain of life to live in that that little world that feels protected, It feels secluded, but really is more just about being numb. Because of delusion, we miss a lot. We're living in abeyance. We're not actually present with what is. And if you go back especially to neutral experience, which makes up such a good part of our day, that when we really disconnect, 
from that neutral range of things, we miss such a huge part of our lives. When I was first doing this practice, living in India, in this, this particular compound, a kind of Burmese monastery, and the instruction that I was given was to try to place a mental note on everything all day long, whatever the predominant experience was. So I found myself kind of walking around this compound, mentally noting, waiting, 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 more than almost anything else. And finally I said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized I was waiting for something important enough to happen or significant enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen to be able to note it. And I realized I was living my life as though a tape recorder with the pause button on. I was waiting. I was in abeyance. That's delusion. To actually make the effort to wake up, to connect, to be present, to what they call, to be practicing what they call wise attention, which simply means to be in the fullness of our experience, whatever it might be. There's nothing that we can know that's not going to change. Nothing we can know with the body, know with the mind. But we can be present for it. We can be present with it. If we are practicing that kind of wise attention, then we will not only see things in a more complete way, with a more complete sense of connection, but we'll understand. We'll understand how much our minds fabricate. We'll understand the relativity of things. We'll understand that what is happening is not inextricably interwoven with a certain reaction to what is happening. I found that quite a startling discovery. You know, that somebody could stand here in the middle of the room and say something or do something And some people will be amused and other people will be angry and some people will be irritated and some people will feel compassion. It's not just one inevitable, certain reaction to an experience. That amazed me when I realized that. And suddenly there was space in the world. Instead of such a leaden solidity or certainty, that's what happens when we're not paying attention is we, we confuse what's happening to the whole cascade of response to what is happening. And we feel doomed in a way, faded, slotted into a certain kind of reaction. So mindfulness is what allows us to open up. Sometimes I tell the story about when we first moved in here, when we actually first came to look at the building in uh, December of 1975. And we walked around. There were, there were still uh, some monks and nuns living here at the time. We walked into the wing that we call the Catskills. And Joseph, who'd grown up in the Catskills, his, his parents... Um, and grandparents had owned a resort there. Joseph walked in and said, 
this looks just like a like an old hotel in the Catskills. So it was a joke, you know, and we went and finished our tour and did our thing and decided to to try to buy the place, you know, and we did, and we moved in in February, on Valentine's Day. And it was so big that we had somebody kind of go around and make a map, you know, like this is where the bathrooms are, this is where the closets are. And they posted the map on the bulletin board one day, and I went and looked at it, and I saw that written underneath that wing was the word Catskills. And I laughed. I said, oh, Joseph made a joke. And this person is kind of carrying on the joke. This will never last, you know. So 28 years later, what do you think the wing is called? Of course, it's called the Catskills. And once I had a friend just a few years ago come here to sit for the first time. And as you know, when you come for the first time, you're given a tour. So this person went on the tour, and they got to that wing, and he asked, why is this called the Catskills? The person leading the tour said, oh, well, you know, we call it the Catskills because it's the wing that lies closest to the Catskill Mountains, <laughs> which, of course, it's not. It actually lies furthest from the Catskill Mountains. But... And he came back and told me that in all seriousness. And I just looked at him and I said, why in the world would we name a wing of this building because of its proximity to the Catskill Mountains? You know, I said, Joseph made a joke. A lot of years ago. But this is what happens. You know, we, we fall into a kind of trap of not knowing and then act like we do know. And so we build a legend around what has transpired instead of having the energy to actually investigate. That's what happens through, through delusion. Delusion is very closely akin, they say, to fear and to fanaticism. Because when we don't know and, and we can't abide that feeling, we will hold on to anything to give us a feeling of certainty. It's called the Catskills because. I mean, who knows that, really? And we hold on to our view, and we fight for it, and we insist upon it. It's likened to being out in the wilderness in some kind of terrible storm and finding something that we think will give us shelter and grabbing on tightly to that hope so that we will resent anything that suggests otherwise. And that's why when uh, fanaticism is talked about in the Buddhist tradition, its root is that kind of delusion. It's not knowing and then holding on to what we know. It's not knowing and finding that unbearable. And so our energy instead of going into investigation, goes into clinging and fear in some way. So delusion can be very consequential. It's also uh, an interesting teaching in um, kind of Buddhist ethics where they say that if you do something and you don't know that it's unskillful, that it's going to cause harm. That's actually worse than if you do know and you do it anyway. And this is very peculiar for us, of course, because most of us were raised with a kind of dictum, like you should have known better, and because you should have known better, then it's even worse that you did what you did. But it's actually pretty practical 
you know, they say that if you can imagine that impulse to do something or say something that's really hurtful or harmful, and then you think better of it, and you think, no, you know, been there. I don't need to do that again. And then you want to do it one more time. And you think, no, you know, that's so destructive. I'm not going to do it. And then you get just overwhelmed, and you do it anyway. In those moments where you've pulled back, where you've had a sense of restraint, you've had a sense of seeing things more clearly, they're also consequential. They're also impactful. It's not that they don't count because in the end you got submerged and did the action or, or whatever it was. That's contrasted to a time when you don't know, you have no understanding. There's not only the greed or the hatred or whatever is motivating the act, but there's also ignorance about the fact that it's going to have consequences, and you just throw yourself into it. There's no sense of perspective. You know, every moment of that kind of uh, forward momentum is, is imbued with the greed or imbued with the hatred. There's no kind of settling back at all. And so waking up, understanding, even if we can't fulfill our aspiration, even if we get lost, even if we make a mistake, we have still kind of punctuated the the seeming solidity of the greed or the anger with wisdom, with understanding, instead of delusion. And so that's very important. I'm starting to develop what I'm calling the Swiss cheese theory of reality because it's all about punctuating in that way. We feel something and it seems so totally intense and solid and real, and we just puncture it with moments of seeing how transparent it actually is, how changing it actually is. And we get enough moments in a row Or even if not in a row, we get enough moments through beginning again and beginning again. And what appeared as a kind of solid iron block is seen as really being kind of gauze-like in some way. That's how we practice. So we find when we practice many, many, many moments of grasping, many moments of aversion, and many moments of delusion. What matters, of course, is not the sheer arising of them, but how we relate to them. Do we absolutely believe in them? Do we forget that this isn't going to bring us much happiness? Do we assume this is indicative of a deeper truth about ourselves as compared to the moments of generosity and the moments of love and the moments of wisdom? How are we relating to all of that? Even in the the teaching about the constellation of these qualities into personality types, there's said to be a transformation for each of those personality types. It's not like that's it, you know, diluted forevermore. And the the factor or the quality that each of these transform to point to their particular strength. Because like everything, the grasping and the aversion and the delusion have, have almost like a kind of treasure hidden within them. Their, their positive aspect is distorted and 
and weakened and um, kind of cloaked or, or covered over by the, the unwholesome aspect of it. But in there is something really positive. So they say that the greedy temperament or the kind of grasping tendency we all might have gets transformed or transmuted to faith, faith being that ability to place our hearts. And so faith in that sense means a love of life, coming close to life, not being frightened, not being hid away, hidden away, so that the tendency toward greed, which also brings us close to experience, doesn't have to have that kind of clinging or grasping, that idea that we can, we can defy change. And so what it becomes is coming close to experience, a willingness to take a risk, to open up to life, to really live fully, to love life, that is faith, where we're not kind of lost in this um, cynical removal from the experiences of life, but we're willing to really be there. So the greedy type will become a type of faith. And the angry type transmutes to wisdom, to understanding, because there's often a tremendous intelligence in that ability to cut through, to name what's wrong, both intelligence and courage, to say what's displeasing in a world where everyone is trying to pretend there's nothing wrong, to, to cut through, to not stay on the surface, to have that kind of penetrating intelligence is also a, a quality of wisdom, of understanding. So when we're not lost in kind of the burning of the anger and the tunnel vision of the anger, the sense in the anger that we're at fault or the universe is to blame for the arising of pain, we're not kind of caught in, in that um, tension, then we can almost harness that intelligence, that energy that is latent in there and use it for clarity, use it for being able to name what we see as the truth, use it in that kind of uh, comprehension of what's wrong as well as what is right with life. And they say that delusion transmutes to a kind of equanimity, not the equanimity of unknowing, which is where it starts. Like, do we have different kinds of chairs in the dining room? But an equanimity that sees clearly what is and yet is not reactive because it can see clearly in perspective. So it it transmutes to a kind of balance of mind. I was thinking just now that people tell me that uh, deluded people are very nice people to travel with because you don't care about anything. Once I went to uh, China, I traveled through China and Tibet with a friend of mine who is also a self-declared greedy type, and we would check into some hotel somewhere, and she would say, well, do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I'd say, no. And then 15 minutes later, I'd say, why did you want that bed over there? And, and she would say, oh, the mosquito net doesn't have a hole in it, and it's close to the window, so I can control the window, and it's close to the light switch, so I can control the light. You know, and she, the mattress isn't sagging, and she'd list all these things, which I had never noticed. 
But instead of the equanimity of not knowing, there can be the equanimity of actually knowing, of knowing fully what's going on, but not being caught. So the alchemical agent in all of this is mindfulness, which I keep thinking should have a more glamorous name. But it doesn't sound that exciting, really, does it? But it's the quality of mindfulness that allows us to take that tendency toward greed, toward overlooking what is, toward, toward holding on, and actually transforms it to a state of faith, of openness to life, of a willingness to, to be there, to connect fully. And it's mindfulness that takes anger or aversion and transforms it to wisdom so that we have the integrity of our vision of truthfulness, we have the power of our convictions and our aspirations without that burning, without that closing down. And it's mindfulness that takes a very fundamental state of delusion, of not having a clue what is going on inside you or outside of you, and wakes us up, has us actually be present, and present fully, wholly, whether our experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So we stop waiting. We actually are, are alive. The very famous quotation from the Buddha where he said, uh, heedfulness or mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Those who are heedless or those who are mindless are as if dead already. So this is the invitation And we don't have to trade in our actual experience. Because no matter what it is, whether it's seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or thinking, feeling, it's going to be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So in every single moment of our experience, we have have both a, a tremendous challenge and a tremendous opportunity for freedom. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.